That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Pobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Okay, welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. Dr. Dave, Dr. Michelle here. What's up? Hey, Dave, how are you? Good, good, good. I just took What's some, happening? Well, I just took some GI sooth. Yeah. <laughs> After our last recording about gastritis, and I was like, maybe I should get some more GI sooth. Yeah. Well, it's relevant <laughs> to what we're going to talk about today, the old GI sooth from Cytomatrix. That's why I brought it up. Uh, yeah. Simple, how's, it, simple, how's it working for effective. you? I, I love it. I do. I mean, I've just kind of brought it back into the mix like two, three days ago after our last recording. So it's not like it's having some like transcendental yeah. effect overnight all, success. All, right. Um, yeah. but I feel like just quelling some of the fires. Yeah. Can't go digestive wrong. fire. Well, I mean, fire, yeah. I think this, this episode's probably best for those who are listening sequentially because we talked about, and we talked about, um, gaseous. um, and that's why you went and got your GI Sooth. Um, so we thought we'd we'd sort of uh, talk about something very, very relevant to gastritis, which is proton pump inhibitors, the sixth most common prescribed class of drugs in the yep. world. Yep. So, so for people who don't know what a proton pump inhibitor is, it's often used for disorders like GERD, peptic ulcers, erosive esophagitis, Zillinger, Ellis, Zollinger Ellison. Thank you, sir. Thanks for saving me on that one. Um, (laughs) Gastritis, H. pylori, things like that. So healthcare providers could prescribe this alone or in combination with an antacid, um, or they could be used with antibiotics for H. pylori. They basically work by binding to the cell on the wall of the stomach called the parietal cell, whose purpose is to produce hydrochloric acid. And then by doing so, the stomach is less able to secrete HCL or hydrochloric acid. And then by the, the purpose of this is to reduce the stomach acids so that you can then allow ulcers to heal and reflux to subside. That's basically the thought process behind that. And they are different from like H2 blockers because apparently proton pump inhibitors fully shut down acid pumps, while H2 blockers will only block the signal that triggers acid production so proton pump inhibitors have a longer effect. They could sometimes provide relief for up to 72 hours where H2 blockers might only work for about 12 hours or so. Yeah. Um, and so usually if you have one of these, the name probably ends in Prazole. So yeah. Omeprazole, Esomeprazole, Lansoprazole, Dexlansoprazole, Pantoprazole, Rabiprazole. And you might pronounce those differently than I yeah. do, but they end in that. Some of the common names are like Proselec, Prevacid, that kind of stuff. Nexium, yeah, more of like the more common terminology. Yeah, so uh, big money drugs that are uh, flying off the shelf. I think flying off the over the counter in some jurisdictions too, which is 
um, maybe related to some of our, um, you know, our collective hesitation with overuse of these things. Yeah. I don't know. If, is that more of a thing south of the border from us? Like, is that more of a United States thing versus a C- Canada or Ontario thing? I don't, I don't know actually if they're available just over the counter. I think it's a new thing. I, I don't, again, we're recording, so I should, I should know this beforehand, but I, I think you can get some of them over the counter now. And I may be wrong in saying that I'm mm-hmm. in Ontario. Canada. You, you know um, what's so funny though is like as much as like I asked this question, I didn't look into it because I'm not the one prescribing them. So for some reason, it's just not on my forebrain to like think about that. So uh, my apologies to our audience that the, the point is they're super prevalent. Yeah, and and they they like we've alluded to I think in the gastritis episode, like say you've got Zollinger Ellison, it could be a critical uh, saving medication. Totally. I think the key the key thing here is overuse and trigger happy prescribing without getting closer to maybe a, a closer to the root cause uh, approach. Yeah, because I mean, in spite of the fact that they may or may not be available over the counter in Canada, they're still heavily prescribed from physicians. And yes. and sometimes I get people who come into my office who say they've been on a proton pump inhibitor for twenty years. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, Rosa. <laughs> so, well, no, it's interesting because you were looking actually into some some of the duration recommendations. Yeah. Uh, do you want to maybe talk about that quickly? Because yeah. I think it's relevant. I was trying to find for some reason in my head, I kept hearing the thing three months. Safety data is only three months. And I don't remember where I came up with this number. So I was trying to find that. And what I did find is that uh, the FDA does have certain guidelines. Um, that proton pump inhibitors is, well, it says in contrast to prescription PPIs, probably because they don't want people misusing them, over-the-counter PPIs are marketed at low doses and are only intended for 14-day courses of treatment up to three times a year um, to avoid uh, any kind of risk. This this article was based on risk for uh, fracture risk with osteoporosis, et cetera. So, um, the FDA has determined that an osteoporosis and fracture warning um, needs to be on over-the-counter proton pump inhibitors so that just Joe Schmo grabbing them isn't misusing them. Um, but but the same risk is still there for people who are prescribed proton pump inhibitors and hopefully your doctor is doing your due diligence with you about that. And it says healthcare professionals should be aware of the risk for fracture if they are recommending the use of these at higher doses or for longer periods of time other than what is actually on the label. So 14-day courses up to three times per year, it says. And thanks to the wonders of technology and the get <clears throat> information right away, uh, the world that we live in, I, I just saw Nexium 24-hour is a non-prescription medication. Mm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also found uh, something, it was in a PubMed article. Um, it was a review of long-term effects of proton pump inhibitors. And it gave a, for instance, for GERD. So treatment for GERD in adults um, with a recommended window of like the duration of use. So for esomoprazole, um, 20 or 40 milligrams once daily for 48 weeks. Lansoprazole, 30 milligrams once daily or up to twice a day for up to eight weeks. But the duration of use is always for up to eight weeks for all of these based uh-huh. on the recommendations. Um, and it's usually somewhere between a 20 to 40 milligram dose once a day, sometimes maybe up to twice a day for GERD specifically. So, um, 
I don't know. I don't know what the safety data is or studies for long term if it's safe to use, if it's not, or if it's just a matter of that it is okay, but you just want to be mindful of the possible consequences and be vigilant about monitoring for those. I, I that that I'm not sure, but a lot of articles would just say that um, if it's used for longer term, where was another one I had? Um, that's, you know, sometimes um, it could be used for up to 12 months uh, under the observation of like a medical doctor or patients might have to use it for two to three months at a time, maybe up to 12 months, et cetera. So it feels like it's very up to the discretion of your physician uh, based on your specific needs. And they do recommend that the physician should be monitoring, monitoring you for um, some of the consequences and side effects that could come from long-term use. Yeah, I think that Nexium 24-hour that I was reading about too, I think that's one of the qualifiers, which theoretically seems fine. I think they said uh, you can use it two, two times a week. Um, which maybe from some of the, like if we're trying to sum up all the data that we've been looking at and, and um, uh, talking about together, maybe two times a week wouldn't be the end of the world um, mm -hmm. in terms of some of the side effects and risk profiles. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that's where that comes from. The problem is I'm thinking of, you know, actually implementing. So if someone goes over the counter, gets Nexium 24 hour and it works, I'm betting they're going to get it the next day and they're going to go, oh shit, this is great. Uh, I don't have any heartburn right now and get it the next day and get it the next day and get mm -hmm. it. The, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't know, I, maybe, maybe a, that's a bit cynical, but I would imagine when you've got a really bad symptom, like uh, that seems to be abated or completely at least surfacely fixed by a proton pump inhibitor, you're going to go get it the next day more likely. Yeah. So, and that's where the long-term effects start to, start to maybe rear their ugly head yeah yeah i mean I, I just came across another thing it says recommended length of therapy for fda approved indications in adults um for different things so symptomatic GERD or heartburn or h pylori or reduced uh, risk reduction for NSAID associated gastric ulcers those kinds of things um and the longest duration for hypersecretory conditions, it literally just says long-term across the board for hypersecretory. So that would be the Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, probably where it's just, that's a very unique situation. It just says long-term. You got a gastronoma. It's just constantly right. making gastrin. Yeah. But in every other situation, um, it says the most was 12-week period in all mm -hmm. fairness. And one said not uh, maintenance. There's no studies for longer than 12 months for healing and erosive esophagitis for same thing for, for lansoprazole and for esomoprazole or however you say them maintenance, no studies over six months. So there's lack of studies to show safety data beyond like six to 12 months for certain conditions with certain types of PPIs. Um, and the only thing that allows for just general long-term was the hypersecretory conditions. So just I think that's, yeah, that's important to know because I think when, when naturopaths like, like us, when we see people, uh, they're often been on these things for, I, I would say the majority of people I've seen on PPI has probably been on them for years. Yeah. Like I said, I've, I literally have people who have on them 15 years, 20 years, and they just kind of brush it off like that. They're like, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's, but, but you know, there's been, there hasn't been, you know, they're, they're not really indicating that there's been any kind of 
efforts to mitigate, manage, reduce dependency on that. They're just kind of happy with just having everything suppressed because they weren't, I think a lot of people don't understand the repercussions or the possible repercussions of long-term PPI. So they're just kind of like, oh yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's helping, but yeah, they're not I mean, really thinking a, beyond that. Right. First concern, right. It, that's it's it. Sort of this nasty feeling or, or sensation mm -hmm. or symptom. Do you want to right. talk about some of the, uh, the most, like we sort of looked through, uh, cause there's been data actually on looking at the long-term or overuse or over-prescribing of PPIs for, it looks like about 25 years or 20 years at least is, is a lot of the papers we were looking at. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about some of the most, what looks like the most like reliable for sure uh, side effects with proton pump inhibitors? Yeah. So I'm looking at this PubMed article and it said over the past decade, there's been a lot of studies to evaluate long-term PPI adverse effects. Um, some of the big ones are long, uh, calcium malabsorption and long-term fracture risk. Um, so, so, so that becomes an increased, especially as the elderly and, and as your digestion kind of falters more as you become older, then you might be more prone to reflux. You might be more prone to things, you know, uh, as things just don't work as effectively. So that is definitely something that we want to be mindful of. Magnesium so the, too was, yeah. was another one. Yeah. Which, so yeah, go on. Yeah. Which is worrying. I like to use magnesium to help calcium. Yeah. Um, so I often, I actually don't, I don't have any calcium supplements here at the clinic, but um, a lot of, of magnesium and, and being low in magnesium, um, I, I find that clinically really, really important. Um, yeah. yeah. And some people, I mean, and that would be the studies will based will be based on hypomagnesemia. So meaning they found people with low magnesium, I would yes. say the real, the real or the reality of the situation is uh, a lot of people with functional magnesium deficiencies that improve upon magnesium supplementation will not even be caught in those studies. So um, I don't know how many people you run magnesium on. I, I don't do it that often, but it's very rare that I find it very, very low or outside of the range. However, it's yeah. very common that people do extremely well clinically with magnesium, yeah. even in the absence of hypomagnesemia. Well, we also had in our magnesium talk where it became extremely evident that like serum magnesium really constitute only like 1% of your total magnesium. So it's not really a good reflection of your total body magnesium. When we did that talk, that became abundantly clear that that test may or may not be the most valid test for, for that. Um, I just want to go back to something really quickly about the calcium. Um, if the pH of the stomach is too high, i.e. too basic, calcium is not absorbed into the bloodstream and remains in the gastrointestinal tract for fecal excretion. So there's that. And then there is a, uh, Khalili and colleagues surveyed 80,000 postmenopausal women to measure the incidence of hip fracture in women taking PPIs. The study found that there was a 35% increase in risk of hip fracture among women who are regularly using PPIs for the last two years. Um, so that's just a quick little stat for you guys on that one. And then when it comes to the magnesium, Proton pump inhibitors have been linked to hypomagnesemia because um, it, uh, to, 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 uh, what's the, what exactly there's something in here. Sorry, I'm, I'm missing the, 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 the statistic and stuff, but anyways, I don't know if there was a mechanism of action that they showed there, but 
it does well, show stomach, hypomagnesia. Stomach and, <clears throat> stomach and minerals. I mean, yeah. we're compromising mineral absorption here, people. That's, that's what's <clears throat> going on here. And what do you, what do you, and we're also compromising, okay, so we're also compromising zinc, which uh, is not yeah. tested as much, didn't seem to be as thoroughly tested or, or evaluated in, in the bit of uh, evidence scouring that we did. No. Um, but again, what's the commonality here? Minerals. Okay, yeah. so then I also saw some iron study where, um, yeah, and mineral, and there's another important mineral, which we've dedicated more than enough time to, I think. Right. Um, and also, you're not going to absorb uh, your your protein as well. Yeah. Okay, so, so what are bones made of, people? Like minerals and proteins, you know? <laughs> and, and so are you surprised when, even if you find normal bone density, which one study found, they found normal bone density, However, there was increased fracture risk, and it looks like almost across the board, it looks like increased fracture risk is a major is a major thing with proton pump inhibitors, and that should make you think. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other home run for sure issues with uh, PPI use risk factors, or sorry, um, risks, was uh, GI infections. Yeah, like it's it's not even really debatable and mechanism, again, pretty well understood in at least in theory that, you know, if you increase the pH, uh, you're going to have more of your pH sensitive uh, pathogenic bugs that can live through your uh, increased pH stomach. Yeah. So like C. difficile is one of those that yeah, has that was frequently looked at. Yeah. Frequently looked at, but there was also community acquired pneumonia is another one that you're going to be at higher risk for. There was also an article that said uh, meta-analysis suggested that PPI use potential risk factor for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, because your stomach acid is your first line of defense for killing off any pathogen. P. Yeah. PS, right? Spontaneous bacterial periontitis, um, community acquired pneumonia, again, hepatic encephalopathy and adverse outcomes of inflammatory bowel disease. And then a 2021 pooled analysis of three prospective cohorts found that regular PPI users also had an increased risk of developing IBD. So inflammatory bowel disease compared to non-users. So that's also something to think about mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. when it comes to that. And I just really want to, I, I, before we move on to that, we forgot to mention when it comes to the nutrition, nutrient deficiencies, B12, like that's a big one. Like we just completely forgot to say that. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. And that's important because it relates to your, um, to the, to the uh, dementia you were talking about. Yeah. At least with me. Yeah. Right. So I haven't mentioned it on the podcast yet. So like calcium, your B12 also needs an acidic environment to be digested and then absorbed. Um, but uh, so, so that will be affected by chronic use of proton pump inhibitors, which completely suppress your stomach acid production. Um, but there is a growing area of concern about B12's neurological effects. And as it has successfully demonstrated that B12 is essential for proper cognitive function, I found some article, it was a PubMed thing, and that um, that because of this B12 deficiency, it might lead to cognitive decline. Um, and there were some, and some hypotheses that PPI use may be associated with the incidence of dementia. 
So Badiola and colleagues discovered that in the brains of mice given a proton pump inhibitor, the level of beta amyloid increased significantly and affecting the enzymes responsible for cognition. And there was a few other studies that are being shown. Now, I don't know if it's 100% concrete, but there, but there seems to be some investigation of higher risk of dementia. And one study even said that there's a 44% increased risk of incidence of dementia with people who used uh, PPIs regularly. So um, that would be something interesting to continue to look into. And, and the whole B12 deficiency might be playing a really significant role in that. It could be. I'm, I, From what I saw, I wasn't completely sold as we are with some of the other risks. Yeah. But it looks like, yeah, definitely it's worth looking at, especially in the context of how uh, dementia seems to be on the march big time. Like a, a lot of a lot of us are going to be having uh, struggles with dementia. Yeah. So uh, this would probably... You know, you can imagine it would be more likely to compromise or yeah. to contribute to your risk than it would be that to help. Um, what, back to what you're saying with the uh, with the bugs. So I wanted to go over a couple other specific ones. Couple mm. that are um, a couple <clears throat> that are actually I see and I have a couple patients who are dealing with um, uh, the sequelae of infections with salmonella. Mm. I have one with uh, salmonella post salmonella issues. She also had C diff. Um, which seemed seems to be uh, very you know relevant to the stomach as well, and then Campylobacter jejuni. Uh, I have another patient who, ever since she had Campylobacter, uh, it's it's been a rough go. So those are two of the other bugs, as well as invasive strains of E. coli, uh, Vibrio cholerae, and Listeria. So the stomach is is a critical sort of um, barrier in more ways than one that that these bugs have to get by mm -hmm. um, and in order for it to be a proper barrier it has to be properly taken care of in terms of having adequate uh, acid and and a proton pump inhibitor although it may help with the symptom is is um is compromising that and its ability mm -hmm. to digest <clears throat> uh yeah i mean if you cannot break down absorb and assimilate the nutrients from your food, there's going to be a very large reper like snowballing effect of repercussions in the rest of your body. I just, and if your stomach acid, which is the chemical way of you actually breaking down your food, uh, in a, and then in addition to the mechanical muscular structure of your stomach to break down your food, if one of those is compromised, there are going to be downstream ramifications, maybe not short-term, but long-term, this could probably, this could also just lead to a lot of different things. If you can't break that, because if you just can't break down your food and then what about not breaking down fibers of food properly? So then we have hyper-fermenting microbes and stuff leading back to some of, maybe some of the things you were seeing as well. I just feel like uh, when using any kind of pharmaceutical, we need to be very smart about it and it needs to be individualized and we need to be thinking more long-term rather than just short-term. Yeah. And yeah. Risk benefit. Right? Totally. Yeah. And there's some, lots of risks. Of, yeah. Not, not digesting your food is kind of a big deal guys. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, like, it's, just it's you know, it's the more I, the more I practice, I keep focusing on, on the stomach and, and even today it becomes very clear with other patients mm. too. It's like, yeah. um, you know, and that's why I'm getting a lot of people to do that, um, that betaine HCL test, which maybe we should, should bring up as a, as a possible, you want to bring that up? 
Yeah, we can. I just want to mention a few really quick things. Uh, chronic kidney disease apparently is another thing that may have an increase. You may have an increased incidence of chronic kidney disease with proton pump and use inhibitors. Now, I don't know about how clear those connections are, but I'm seeing in this PubMed review that they're citing various types of studies looking at it, like it could be a 1.45 fold increase, a 1.72 fold increase, you know, it-, it That seems significant. Right, and then some saying that they observed it more when you're doing a twice a day daily dose of a PPI rather than a one a day dose of PPIs. So there could be, there, there might be mm. something in there that we also have to be mindful of. Um, and- it's not a big theoretical stretch, though, no. if you think about it, because if no. you think of your three main organs that have to do with uh, acid-base balance, you'd be thinking about your lungs, your stomach, yeah. and your uh, kidneys. Yeah, there was just a quick summary. It says there are reports of adverse events for adverse effects of long-term PPIs uh, beyond osteoporosis-related fracture. The reports of intestinal infections like C. difficile, uh, vitamin absorptions and minerals like B12, magnesium, and iron. You mentioned zinc. We've also mentioned calcium. Furthermore, there are some dementia, pneumonia, kidney disease, myocardial infarction, and stroke reports connect to long-term PPIs, which we haven't even gotten into those. Um, mm. yeah. So, so, uh, and then, uh, additional questions uh, is whether chronic PPI use would also lead to the onset of gastric cancer. The abrupt discontinuation of proton pump inhibitors is also related to increased gastric acid production, um, which is also known as acid rebound because of its effect on gastrin. So there's some really interesting things. And, and it does say the conclusion is the key to mitigating adverse effects is the rational use of proton pump inhibitors at the lowest effective dose and in the shortest possible duration. What a crazy idea. That is from this particular article from gastroent or some, uh, oh, it's, it's some non-English you know, article. So there's first word I can't pronounce, but it's basically a gastroenterological like journal. Um, so anyways, yeah. So the key to mitigating adverse effects is rational use, lowest dose for the shortest period of duration. So uh, when I get someone coming in who's never had their dose changed and they've been on it, or it's actually increased and then they've been on it for 20 years, I'm kind of like, what's happening? <laughs> so anyways, yeah. Voila. That's just the last thing I wanted to say before we kind of like switch gears. Well, yeah, it's principle of least dose is what I follow in my own clinical practice. I do that all day, every day. Principle of least dose, principle of least force. Hence my love of reliable homeopathics that actually friggin' work. And if you got gastritis or something like that, you got to try Robinia. But mm -hmm. anyway, um, and then, uh, least force i use osteopathic maneuvers which are the absolute mm -hmm. least force I, I i don't think you need to use much force to get a lot of good work done so that makes that just makes a lot of sense makes sense but i don't know if common sense is always very so well uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not always practiced the way we would hope it would be but anyways um okay why don't you want to talk about the betaine stuff you you yeah that sir so, so one, one thing I like to do more recently is a bit of an old school. I remember learning about this. Do you remember learning about this uh, HCL yes. test a long time ago? Yeah. I so I learned it about clients. it. Cool. I, I sort of didn't do it for a long period of time. And, you know, 
diving back deep into the stomach again, I'm kind of like, I, I, I think that there's some uh, validity in trying this uh, sort of self-test uh, to, to uh, see if you have adequate HCL because most people are going to have inadequate HCL acid um, and some people are going to have too much. So that's the risk. And this is not, you know, this cannot be taken as treatment advice as everything on here is this is for discussion and, mm-hmm. and, and everything. It's not, I'm not telling you what to do here, but it's a very interesting test. At least I'll tell you the concept of it is you give uh, a source of HCL in the form of betaine HCL with or without pepsin. Often they come with pepsin. I don't think it's problematic to have it with pepsin. The one I have, uh, I'm using in clinic does have pepsin. Mm-hmm. So ideally you have it with a meal that contains protein. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm usually getting patients to only do it at dinner. So the experiment really is you have your normal size dinner, whatever your normal dinner is, hopefully with some protein. And you take one of these capsules, whatever size capsule, it's usually like five, 600 milligrams. And you see, you know, if you have any, uh, you know, if you tolerate it well. So if you have one capsule with the meal, tolerate it well. Okay, all good. Maybe do it another day, the next day for dinner. Okay, all good. Then you move up to, you move up to say two capsules and you do, you sort of repeat, you have an escalating sort of dose until you get to the point where you're like, you know what? I got some discomfort, warmth, burning, weird feeling, whichever comes first. And you're like, mm-hmm. pretty sure, you know, that's the threshold, right? You're at the point where you've got maybe too much acid going on. And then you do whatever that number is, say that number is N, you just do N minus one uh, going forward um, with, with subsequent meals uh, with protein and probably only for dinner so that it's a little bit more um, standardized. And then you just sort of see, okay, now I needed four at the beginning. After two weeks of using four, maybe you start to feel tingling or burning or some sort of adverse uh, reaction, you decrease it to three. And then you get used to that and you decrease it to do. So it's kind of like um, you're trying to prop up your stomach a bit so that it can um, it can make that acid again. And probably these people have gastritis, uh, non-atrophic gastritis. Um, and yeah, it just sort of hopefully props it up. And it, it's a bit it's a bit of a test and treatment in one. So mm-hmm. I really like it. Um, yeah, it's it's almost feels like it's self-perpetuating. And when you start to reestablish that acid production, it's almost like a positive positive feedback rather than a negative feedback. Yeah. And you're, and you're trying to balance, um, like Michelle's uh, saying negative and positive feedback. You're trying to balance, do I have that warm or acid or weird feeling? Balance that with symptoms of maldigestion. It could just be bloating that some people are getting or, yeah. or you know, crazy flatus, farty pants. And, you know, that goes away from using more acid. Um, then maybe you stay at that for a while until uh, the negative feedback being the burning or discomfort comes and you just try to balance it out that way. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, it it can, I've had some people go to like three capsules and then quite quickly have to reduce down to one. And then they're like, okay. Yeah. 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 And then, and then do they often stay on one? Sometimes and sometimes they come off and then maybe we just give them bitters or ACV to kind of perpetuate digestive function while we're still kind of, you know, working through some things. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. I find that a really, a really cool thing that people can do under the uh, guidance of their practitioner. And the reason we're bringing this up is that you like, if you, if, even with our gastritis conversation from last week, um, 
sometimes the symptoms of low stomach acid are also mimicking that of what we think is too much stomach acid. Mm-hmm. And what mo- a lot of people need, especially with our talk about stomach and how it's so connected to the vagus nerve and most people are stressed the F out and people are running at all cylinders firing and they're not digesting well. Often it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, I have historically found that it's rare that somebody actually just had, they're an over-secretor. I find that often they're an under-secretor or it's H. pylori, which neutralizes your acid, which means you still have to reestablish proper acid function in an acidic environment to help eradicate the bug and also support proper digestion. That doing the betaine test can be effective for GERD. And I even had a client the other day come to see me and he was given the recommendations of doing proton pump inhibitors by his doctor and he never liked how it felt. He's like, it didn't really feel like it made a difference. And he was like, I didn't for some, he's like, something in me just didn't like how it felt when I took them. Like, I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly his, his response. And then I guess his sister was doing some, some in, interesting research and said that he should try betaine and he's been using betaine and he's found that his reflux has been better. Cool. And that was just on his own accords. So, cool. so I think that, um, we always, we always jump to, we need to suppress the acid because too much is being made, but sometimes it's actually the opposite. That's just mimicking similar symptoms, which is where supporting stomach acid production comes in. So that's why Dave was bringing that in for all the people who are listening. Um, other things that we could do for things like GERD or as opposed to just proton pump inhibitors. So giving us alternative options to the use of proton pump inhibitors or to help you, we like maybe in a, in a guided setting as naturopaths, we might use certain things to help somebody again, reduce their dependency on this medication. Or if they've discussed with their doctor that they want to come off, we can help guide them. Take it um, away, I'm, sister. What are you right. going to guide them with? So, I mean, demulsants. Hello. Hey, yo. <laughs> GI, GI soothe from Cytomatrix, which I love because it's simple. Yeah. Um, and it's just like your DGL, your deglycerinide licorice, your marshmallow root, your slippery elm, this like blend of these three soothing herbs for any kind of irritation or itis of your digestive tract, anywhere in your digestive tract. Um, so me love these long time. Yeah. Um, zinc carnosine is another great one. So um, it can help with new mucosal cells to, um, to mitigate any areas of damage. It can activate cellular growth to heal stomach wounds. So for like ulcers and inflammatory and, and inflammatory damage, it's an antioxidant. So it helps with free radical damage, the GI lining. It's also been shown um, uh, that it can help with um, H. pylori as well, um, which is yay. Fantastic. Yeah. I feel like that's it's a nice little one. Um Apparently it can also help with people who are suffering from rebound acidity, hyperacidity. So again, with that, the complications of PPI use. So um, it's an important one to add in to, to minimize or mitigate uh, that re, um, rebound acidity. And then another one that could be helpful is something called masticachios. Um it's a resin. It's a, it's a resin from a tree and it can help heal and soothe kind of peptic ulcers, gastric ulcers. It helps inhibit H pylori, um, uh, replication and, 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 or just helps eradicate it. And it also helps with like alleviating any gastric and intestinal inflammation. So 
those might be areas that uh, a naturopath or those might be certain nutrients and supplements that a naturopath might put into a protocol. Um, if someone has GERD, if they want to come off PPIs or if they want to reduce their dosages of PPIs, um, or if they're not even on PPIs and they just want natural therapies. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're cool because they're very yin, mm -hmm. um, and supportive. And, and I, I would argue that it would be great to use as a kind of, um, to, you know, uh, co-treatment, I guess, if you're even on PPIs and you're worried about pulling off too quick. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would, I would be, um, all four using them at the same time. I love Mastic. Mastic's interesting. When Mastica, you brought up the Mastic gum, uh, they did some studies in the Middle East from like, I don't know, it was like 20 years ago. And, and they did endoscopically, uh, they endoscopically approved uh, healing of ulcers, which is uh, pretty cool because you don't get that type of, you don't get that type of investigation a lot of time with natural medicines where it's quite invasive evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember reading that years and years ago. Um, yeah. So endoscopically proven duodenal ulcers um, being being healed uh, largely just by mastic gum. Pretty cool. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we have failed to mention yet that whether you decide to stay on proton pump inhibitors or not, you still need to address the train. Like, are you sleeping yeah. well? Are you pooping well? Is your gut yeah. microbiome screwed up? Is your liver and gallbladder screwed up? Because sometimes that actually causes heartburn and reflux for people or reflux symptoms, it's liver gallbladder problems or structural issues. Is your diaphragm stuck? This is where your, your osteopathic type of methods come in. Um, do you have SIBO? Is there other pathogens happening? Do you have food sensitivities that are causing inflammation and irritation of the gut lining? So, so it's not to like, none of this is in isolation. All those other moving parts should still always be addressed regardless of whether you continue to use proton pump inhibitors or take a different approach. So I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, that makes sense. Just totally double, makes sense. Just want to double down on that. Those lifestyle we, factors kind of matter. <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to ignore it. You have to, you have to bring it up, Michelle. I'd say heavy on the stress, especially with the stomach too. I'd, I'll just sort of double down on that one. Heavy yes. on the stress side of things. If you're super stressed. This, um, is what, this is what I like to tell people. If you cannot di digest your outside world, you probably won't be able to digest your inner world either. So you need to got to work on some stuff. Rest and digest people. That's it. Okay. Peace.